Chapter Thirty One of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Thirty One. Robert Cater's Success. Hello, so it's here. Robert Cater stood by a much littered table and looked down on a few papers and envelopes which someone had laid there during his absence. All day long he had been wandering about the streets of Paris, waiting, passing the time as he could in his impatience, hoping for the communication contained in one of these very envelopes. Now that it had come, he felt himself struck with a singular weakness and did not seize it and tear it opened. Instead, he stood before the table, his hands in his pockets, and whistled softly. He made the tour of the studio several times, pausing now and then to turn a canvas about, apparently as if he would criticize it, looking at it, but not regarding it, only absently turning one and another as if it were a habit with him to do so. Then returning to the table, he stirred the envelopes apart with one finger, and finally separated one from the rest, bearing an official seal, and with it a small package carefully secured and bearing the same seal. But he did not open either. Yes. It's here, and that's the one, he said. But he spoke to himself, for there was no one else in the room. He moved away wearily, keeping the packet in his hand, but leaving the envelope on the table, and hung his hat upon a point of an easel, and wiped his damp brow. As he did so, he lifted the dark brown hair from his temple, showing a jagged scar. Quickly, as if with an habitual touch, he rearranged the thick, soft lock so that the scar was covered, and mounting a dais, seated himself on a great throne-like chair covered with a royal tiger-skin, the head of the tiger mounted high with glittering eyes and fangs showing, rested on the floor between his feet, and there, holding the small packet in his hand, with elbows resting on the arms of the throne, he sat with head dropped forward and shoulders lifted and eyes fixed on the tiger's head. For a long time he sat thus in the darkening room. At last it grew quite dark. Only the great skylight over his head showed a defined outline. The young man had had no dinner and no supper, for his pockets were empty, and his last sou gone. If he had opened the envelopes, he would have found money, and more than money, for he would have learned that the doors of the salon had opened to him, and the highest medal awarded him, and that for which he had toiled and waited and hoped for which he had staked his last effort and sacrificed everything, was won. He was recognized. 
and all Paris would quickly know it, and not only Paris, but all the world. But when he would open the envelope, his hands fell slack, and there it still lay on the table, concealed by the darkness. Down three flights of stairs in the court, a strange and motley group were collecting, some bearing candles, all masked, some fantastically dressed, and others only concealed by the dominoes. The stairs went up on the outer wall of this inner court, past the windows of the basement, occupied by the concierge and his wife and pretty daughter, and entered the building on the first floor above. By this arrangement, the concierge could always see from his window who mounted them. Look, Mamma! The pretty daughter stood peering out, her face framed in the white muslin curtains. Look, see the students! Ah, but they are droll! Come away, ma fille. But the owl and the ape there, they seem on very good terms. I wonder if they go to the room of Monsieur Catier. I think so. For one, the ghost in white, he's a little lame like the Englishman who goes always to the room of Monsieur. Abbe, imbecile, away with you, pig. The ape had suddenly approached his ugly face to the face framed in the white muslin curtains on the other side of the window, and made exaggerated motions of an embrace. The wife of the concierge snatched her daughter away and drew the curtains close. Foolish child, why do you stand and watch the rude fellows? This is what you get by it. I've told you to keep your eyes within. But I love to see them, so droll they are. Stealthily, the fantastic creatures began to climb the stairs, one, two, three flights, traversing a long hall at the end of each flight, and turning to climb again. The expense of keeping a light on each floor for the corridors was not allowed in this building, and they moved along in the darkness, but for the flickering light of the few candles carried among them. As they neared the top, they grew more stealthy, and kept close together on the landing outside the studio door. One stooped and listened at the keyhole, then tried to look through it. Not there? whispered another. No light, was the whispered reply. They spoke now in French, now in English. He has heard us and hid himself. He's a strange man, this Scotchman. He did not attend the vernassage, nor the presentation of prizes. Yet he wins the highest. The owl stretched out an arm, bare and muscular from under his wing, and tried the door very gently. It was not locked, and he thrust his head within, then reached back and took a candle from the ghost. This will give light enough. Put out the rest of yours and make no noise. Thus. In the darkness they crept into the studio and gathered around the table. There they saw the unopened envelopes. He's not here. He does not know, said one and another. Where can he be? He has taken a panic and fled. I told you so, said the ghost. Ah, here he is. Behold, the hamlet of our ghost. Wake, hamlet, your father's spirit has arrived cried one in English with a very French accent. 
They now gathered before the dais, shouting and cheering in both English and French. One brought the envelopes on a pallet and presented them. The young man gazed at them, stupidly at first, then with a feverish gleam in his eyes, but did not take them. Yes, I found them when I came in, but they are not for me. They're addressed to you, Robert Cater, and the news is published, and you leave them here unopened. He does not know. I told you so. You have the packet in your hand. Open it. Take it from him and decorate him. He's in a dream. It is the great metal. We will wake him. They began to cheer and cheer again, each after the manner of the character he had assumed. The ass brayed, the owl hooted, the ghost groaned, the ape leapt on the back of the throne whereon the young man still sat, and seized him by the hair, chattering idiotically after a manner of apes, and began to wag his head back and forth. In the midst of the uproar, Demosthenes stepped forward and took the envelopes from the pallet, and, tearing them open, began reading them aloud by the light of a candle held for him by Lady Macbeth, who now and then interrupted with the remark that her little hand was stained with blood, stretching forth an enormous hairy hand for their inspection. But as Demosthenes read on, the uproar ceased, and all listened with courteous attention. The ape leapt down from the back of the throne, the owl ceased hooting, and all were silent, until the second envelope had been opened, and the contents made known, that his exhibit had been purchased by the salon. Robert Cater, you are at the top. We congratulate you to be recognized by the Salon des Artistes Francis. It is to be recognized and honored by all the world. They came forward with kindly and sincere words, and the young man stood to receive them. But reeling and swaying, weary with emotion, and faint with hunger. Were you not going to the mask? I was weary. I had not thought. Then wake up and go. We come for you. I have no costume. Ah, that is nothing. Make one. It is easy. He sits there like his own Saul, enveloped in gloom. Come, I will be your David, cried one, and snatched a guitar and began strumming it wildly. While the company scattered and searched the studio for materials with which to create for him a costume for the mask, the ghost came limping up to the young man, who had seated himself again wearily on the throne and spoke to him quietly. The tide's turned, Cater. Wake up to it. You're clear of the breakers. The two pictures you were going to destroy are sold. I brought those Americans here while you were away and showed them. I told you they'd take something as soon as you were admitted. Here's the money. Robert Cater raised himself, looking in the eyes of his friend and took the bank notes, as if he were not aware what they really might be. I say, you've enough to keep you for a year if you don't throw it away. 
count it. I doubled your price, and they took them at the price I made. Look at these. Then Robert Cater looked at them with glittering eyes, and his shaking hand shut upon them, crushing the banknotes in a tight grip. We'll half it, share and share alike, he whispered, staring at the ghost without counting it. As for this, his finger touched the decoration on his breast. It is given to a... You won't take half? Then I'll throw them away. I'll take them all until you're sane enough to know what you're doing. Give them to me. He took them back and crept quietly, ghost-like, about the room until he found a receptacle in which he knew they would be safe. Then, removing one hundred francs from the amount, he brought it back and thrust it in his friend's pocket. There, that's enough for you to throw away on us tonight. Why are you taking off your decoration? Leave it where it is. It's yours. Yes, I suppose it is. Robert Cater brushed his hands across his eyes and stepped down from the throne. Then, lifting his head and shoulders as if he threw off a burden, he leaped from the dais and with one long howl began an Indian war dance. He was the center of life of the hilarious crowd from that moment. The selection of materials had been made. A curtain of royal purple hung behind the throne, and this they threw around him as a toga, then crowned him as Mark Antony. They found for him also a tunic of soft wool, and with a strip of gold braid they converted a pair of sheepskin bedroom slippers into sandals bound on his feet over his short socks i say mark antony never wore things like these he shouted give me a mask i'll not wear these things without a mask he snatched at the head of the owl who ducked under his arm and escaped go then this is better mark the illustrious was an ass he made a dive for the head of his braying friend and barely missed him come we waste time cleopatra awaits him at la fourchette d'or all our cleopatras await us there surely surely madame la charne is there and the sisters luce and bertha all are there and with them one very beautiful blonde whom you have never seen she is for you you cold scotsman that stone within you which you call a heart to-night it will melt you have everything planned then everything is made ready look here wait my friends i haven't expressed myself yet they were preparing to lift him above their heads i wish to say that you are all to share my good fortune and allow wait for the champagne you can see it then with more force i say hold on i ask you to so we do we hold on now up so he was borne in triumph down the stairs and out on the street and away to the sign of the golden fork and seated at the head of the table in a small banquet room opening off from the balcony at one side where the feast had been ordered 
and prepared was awaiting them. A group of masked young women gathered on the balcony, pelted them with flowers as they passed beneath it, and when the men were all seated, they trooped out and each slid into their appointed place, still masked. Then came a confusion of tongues, badinage, repartee, wit undiluted by discretion, and rippling laughter as one mask after another was tore off. Ah, how glad I am to be rid of it! I was suffocating, said a soft voice at Robert Cater's side. He looked down quickly into a pair of clear, red-brown eyes, eyes into which he had never looked before. Then we are both content that it is off, he smiled as he spoke. She glanced up at him, then down and away. When she lifted her eyes an instant later again to his face, he was no longer regarding her. She was piqued and quickly began conversing with the man on her left, the one who had removed her mask. It is no use. Your smile, mademoiselle. He is impervious, that man. He has no sense, or he could not turn his eyes away. I like the best, the impervious ones. With a light ripple of laughter, she turned again to her right. Monsieur has forgotten. Forgotten? Robert was mystified, until he realized in the instant that she was pretending to a former acquaintance. Could I forget, mademoiselle? Permit me, he lifted his glass. To your eyes and to your memory, he said, and drank it off. After that, he became the gayest of them all, and the merriment never flagged. He ate heartily for he was very hungry, but he drank sparingly. His brain seemed supplied with intellectual missiles, which he hurled right and left. But when they struck, it was only to send out a rain of sparks, like the balls of holiday fireworks, that explode in a fountain of brilliance, and hurt no one. Monsieur is so gay, said the soft voice of the blonde at his side. Are we not here for that, to enjoy ourselves? Ah, if I could but believe that you remember me. Is it possible Mademoiselle thinks herself one to be so easily forgotten? Monsieur, tell me the truth. She glanced up archly. I have one very good reason for asking. You are very beautiful. But that is so banal, that remark. You complain that I tell you the truth when you ask it? You have so often heard it that the telling becomes banal. Shall I continue? But it is of yourself that I would hear. So, then it is as I feared. It is you that has forgotten. They were interrupted at that moment for he was called upon for a story, and he related one of his life as a soldier, a little incident, but very pleasing. They called upon him for another and another. The hour grew late, and at last the banqueters rose, 
began to remask and assume their various characters. "'What are you, monsieur, with that very strange dress that you wear, a Roman or a Greek?' asked his companion. "'I really don't know, a sort of nondescript. I did not choose my costume. It was made up for me by my friends. They called me Mark Antony, but that was because they did not know what else to call me. But they promised me Cleopatra, if I would come with them. They would have done better to call you Petrarch, for I am Laura. But I would never have taken that part. I could make a very decent sort of ass of myself, but not a poet. What a very terrible voice your Lady Macbeth has. Yes, but she was a terror, you know. Shall we follow the rest? They all trooped out of the café, and fiacres were called to take them to the house where the mask was held. The women were placed in their respective carriages, but the men walked. At the door of the house, as they entered the ballroom, they reunited, but again were soon scattered. Robert Cater wandered about, searching here and there for his very elusive Laura, so slim and elegant in her white and gold draperies, who seemed to be greatly in demand. He saw many whom he recognized, some by their carriage, some by their voices. But Laura baffled him. Had he ever seen her before? He could not remember. He would not have forgotten her, never. No, she was amusing herself with him. Monsieur does not dance? It was a Spanish gypsy with her lace mantilla and the inevitable red rose in her hair. But he knew the voice. It was that of a little model he sometimes employed. I dance, yes, but I will only take you out on the dance floor, my little Julie. Ha-ha, <laughs> I know you. Never fear, I will take you out on the dance floor. But one condition. It is granted before I know it. Then tell me, who is she just passing? The one whose clothing is so, so, as if she would pose for the, hush, Julie, the one in white and gold. I asked if it were she. Yes, I know her very well, for I saw a gentleman unmask her on the balcony above there to kiss her. It is she who dances so wonderfully at the opera comique. You have seen her, Mademoiselle Fay. Ah, come, let us dance. It is the most perfect waltz. At the close of the waltz, the owl came and took the little gypsy away from Robert, and a moment later he heard the mellifluous voice of his companion of the banquet. I am so weary, monsieur. Take me away where we may refresh ourselves. The red-brown eyes looked pleadingly into his, and their slender fingers rested on his arm, and together they wandered to a corner of poems, where he seated her, and brought her cool wine jelly and other confections. She thanked him sweetly, and drooping, she rested her head upon her hand, and her arm on the arm of her chair. So dull they are, these fits, 
and the people, bah, they are dull to the point of despair. She was a dream of gold and white as she sat there. The red-gold hair and the red-brown eyes and the soft gold and white draperies, too clinging, as the little gypsy had indicated, but beautiful as a gold and white lily. He sat beside her and gazed on her dreamily, but in a manner too detached. She was not pleased, and she sighed. Take a refreshment, mademoiselle. You will feel better. I will bring you wine. What will you have? Oh, you men who always think that to eat and drink something alone can refresh. Have you never a sadness? Very often, mademoiselle. Then what do you do? I eat and drink, mademoiselle. Try it. Oh, you strange man from the cold north, you make me shiver. Touch my hand. See, you have made me cold. Cold? You are a flame from the crown of gold on your head to your shoes of gold. Now that you are become a success, monsieur, what will you do? To you is given the heart's desire. She toyed with the quivering jelly merely tasting it it too was golden in hue and the golden lights danced in the heart of it a great success i am dreaming it is so new to me that i do not believe it you are very clever monsieur you never tell your thoughts i asked if you remembered me and you answered in a riddle i knew you did not for you never saw me before did I ever see you dance? Ah, there you are again, to see me dance, in a great audience, one of many. That does not count. You but pretended. He leaned forward, looking steadily in her eyes. Did I but pretend, when I said I never could forget you? Ah, mademoiselle, you are too modest. She was maddened that she could not pique him to a more ardent manner, but gave no sign by so much as a quiver of an eyelid. She only turned her profile toward him indifferently. He noticed the piquant line of her lips and chin and throat, and the tones of her delicate skin. Did I not also tell you the truth when you asked me? and you rewarded me by calling me banal. And I was right. You, who are so clever, could think of something better to say. She gave him a quick glance, and placed a quivering morsel of jelly between her lips. But you are so very strange to me. Tell me, were you never in love? That is a question I may not answer. He still smiled, but it was merely the continuation of the smile he had worn before she shot that last arrow. He still looked in her eyes, but she knew he was not seeing her. Then he rallied and laughed. Come, question for question. Were you never in love, or out of love, let us say? Oh, me? 
She lifted her shoulders delicately. Me! I am in love now, at this moment. You do not treat me well. You have not danced with me once. No, you have been dancing always and fully occupied. How could I? Ah, you have not learned. To dance with me, you must take me. Not stand one side and wait. Are you engaged for the next? But yes, it is no matter. I will dance with you. He will be consoled. She laughed, showing her beautiful, even teeth. I make you a confession. I said to him, I will dance it with you unless the cold monsieur asks me. Then I will dance with him, for it will do him good. Robert Cater rose and stood a moment, looking through the poems. The silken folds of his toga fell gracefully around him, and he held his head high. Then he withdrew his eyes from the distance and turned them again on her, the gold and white being at his feet. And she seemed to him no longer human, but a phantom from which he must flee. But if he might do so courteously, for he knew her to be no phantom, and he could not be other than courteous. Will you accept from me my laurel crown? He took the chaplet from his head and laid it at her feet. Then lifting her hand to his lips, he kissed the tips of her pink fingers, bowing low before her. I go to send you wine. Console your partner. It is better so, for I, too, am in love. He smiled upon her as he had smiled at first, and was gone, walking out through the crowd, the weird, fantastic, bizarre company, as if he were no part of them. One and another greeted him as he passed, but he did not seem to hear them. He called a waiter and ordered wine to be taken to Mademoiselle Fay, and quickly was gone. They saw him no more. It was nearly morning. A drizzling rain was falling, and the air was chill after the heat of the crowded ballroom. He drew it into his lungs in deep draughts, glad to be out in the freshness and to feel the cool rain on his forehead. He threw off his encumbering toga and walked in his tunic with bare throat and bare knees and carried the toga over one arm, and swung the other bare arm free. He walked with his head held high, for he was seeing visions, and heard a far distant call. Now at last he might choose his path. He had not failed, but with that call from afar. What should he do? Should he answer it? Was it only a call from out his own heart, a passing, futile call, luring him back? Of one thing he was sure. There was the painting on which he had labored and staked his all, now hanging in the salon. He could see it. One of his visions realized. David and Saul. The deep, rich shadows the throne, the tiger skin, 
the sandaled feet of the remorseful king resting on the great fanged and leering head the eyes of the king looking hungrily out from under his foreboding brows the cruel lips pressed tightly together and the lithe thin hands grasping the carved arms of the throne in fierce restraint all this in the deep shadows between the majestic carved columns their bases concealed by the rich carpet covering the dias and their tops lost in the brooding darkness above the lowering darkness of purple gloom that only served to reveal the sinister outlines of the somber sorrowful suffering king while he indulged the one pure passion left him listening gazing from the shadows out into the light seeing nothing only listening and before him standing in the one ray of light clothed only in his tunic of white and his sandals a human jewel of radiant color and slender strength a godlike conception of youth and grace his harp before him the lilies crushed under his feet that he had torn from the strings which his fingers touched caressingly with sunlight on his crown of golden curling hair and the light of the stars in his eyes david the strong the simple the trusting the god-fearing youth as robert cater saw him looking back through the ages ah now he could live now he could create work he had been recognized and rewarded dust and ashes dust and ashes the hope of his life realized the goblet raised to his lips and the draught bitter the call falling upon his heart imperative beseeching what did it mean slowly and heavily he mounted the stairs to his studio and there fumbled about in the darkness and the confusion left by his admiring comrades until he found candles and made a light he was cold and his light clothing clung to him wet and chilling as grave clothes he tore them off and got into things that were warm and dry and wrapping himself in an old dressing-gown of flannel he sat down to think he took the money his friend had brought him and counted it over good old ben howard half of it must go to him of course and here were finished canvases quite as good as the ones that had sold ben might turn them to as good an account as the others yes here was enough to carry him through a year and leave him leisure to paint unhampered by the necessity of making pot-boilers for a bare living tell me were you never in love that soft 
insinuating voice haunted him against his will. In love, what did she know of love? The divine passion, love, fame, neither were possible to him. He bowed his head upon the table, hiding his face, crushing the banknotes beneath his arms. Deep in his soul, the eye of his own conscience regarded him. An outcast, hiding under an assumed name, covering the scar above his temple, with a falling lock of hair seldom lifted. And deep in his soul, a memory of love. Oh, God, dust and ashes, dust and ashes. He rose, and taking his candle with him, opened a door leading from the studio up a short flight of steps to a little cupboard of a sleeping room. Here he cast himself on the bed and closed his eyes. He must sleep, but no, he could not. After a time of restless tossing, he got up and drew an old portmanteau from the closet and threw the contents out on his bed. From among them he picked up the thing he sought and sat on the edge of his bed with it in his hands, turning it over and regarding it, tying and untying the worn, frayed, but still bright ribbons, which had once been the cherry-colored hair ribbons of little Betty Ballard. Suddenly he rose and lifted his head high in his old, rather imperious way, put out his candle, and looked through the small, dusty panes of his window. It was day, early dawn. He was jaded and weary, but he would try no longer to sleep. He must act and shake off sentimentalism. Yes, he must act. He bathed and dressed with care, and then in haste, as if life depended on hurry, he packed the portmanteau and stepped briskly into the studio, looking all about, noting everything, as if taking stock of it all, then sat down with pen and paper to write. The letter was a long one. It took time and thought. When he was nearly through with it, Ben Howard lagged wearily in. Halloo! Why didn't you wait for me? What did you clear out for and leave me in the lurch? Fresh as a daisy you are, old chap, and I'm done for dead. You're not scientific in your pleasures, Robert Cater lifted his eyes and looked at his friend. Are you alive enough to hear me and remember what I say? Will you do something for me? Shall I tell you now, or will you breakfast first? Breakfast? Ugh! <laughs> he looked disgustedly around him. I'm sorry. You drink too much. Listen, Ben. I'll tell you what I mean to do, and what I wish you to do for me. And you remember all you can of it, will you? You must do it for me now, for you'll be asleep soon, and this will be the last I shall see of you, ever. I'm leaving in two hours, 
as soon as I've breakfasted. What's that? Hold on! Ben Howard sprang up, and darting behind a screen where they washed their brushes, he dashed cold water over his head, and came back toweling himself. I'm fit now. I did drink too much champagne, but I'll sleep it off. Now, fire away. What's up? In two hours, I'll be en route for the coast, and tomorrow I'll take passage for home on the first boat. Robert closed and sealed the long letter he had been writing and tossed it on the table. I want this mailed one week from today. Put it in your pocket so you won't lose it among the rubbish here. One week from today it must be mailed. It's to my great aunt, Jean Craigmile, who gave me the money to set up here the first year. I've paid that up last week with my last sow, and with interest. By rights, she should have whatever there is of any value, for if it were not for her help, there would not have been a thing here anyway, and I've no one else to whom to leave it. So see that this letter is mailed without fail. Will you? The Englishman stood now thoroughly awake, gazing at him, unable to make common sense out of Robert's remarks. But what's up? What are you leaving things to anybody for? You're not on your deathbed. I'm going home. Don't you see? Why don't you take the letter to her yourself if you're going home? Not there, man. Not to Scotland. Your home's there? I've allowed you to think so. Robert forced himself to talk calmly. In truth, I have no home, but the place I call home by courtesy is where I was brought up, in America. You, you d don't, yes, it's time you knew this. I've been leading a double life, and I'm done with it. I committed a crime and I'm living under an assumed name. There is no such man as Robert Cater that I know of on earth, nor ever was. My name is, no matter, I'm going back to the place where I killed my best friend, to give myself up, to imprisonment. I do not know to what, maybe death, but it will end my torture of mind. Now you know why I could not go to the Vernissage to be treated. Well, I could not go, that's all. Nor could I accept the honors given me under a name not my own. All the time I've lived in Paris, I've been hiding, and this thing has been following me. Although my occupation seems to have been the best cover I could have had, Yet my soul has known no peace. Always, always, night and day, my own conscience has been watching and accusing me. An eye of dread, steadily gazing down into my soul and seeing my sin deep, deep in my heart. 
I could not hide from it. I would have given up before, only that I wished to make good in something before I stepped down and out. I've done it. He put his hand heavily on Ben Howard's shoulder. I've had a revelation this night. The lesson of my life is learned at last. It is that there is but one road to freedom and life for me. And that road leads to a prison. It leads to a prison, maybe worse. But it leads me to freedom. From the thing that haunts me, that watches me and drives me, I may write you from that place which I will call home. Were you ever in love? The abruptness of the question sent Ben Howard stammering again. He seized Robert's hand in both his own and held to it. I, 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 old chap, I, no, were you? Yes. I've heard the call of her voice in my heart. And I'm gone. Now, Ben, stop your, well, I'm not going to preach to you, you of all men, but do something worthwhile. I've need a part of the money you got for me to get back on and pay a bill or two, and the rest I leave to you. There, where you put it, you'll find it. Will you live here and take care of these things for me until my good aunt, Jean Craigmile, writes you? She'll tell you what to do with them, and more than likely she'll take you under her wing. <laughs> anyway, work, man, work. This place is yours for the present, perhaps for a good while, and you'll have a chance to make good. If I could live on that money for a year, as you yourself said, you can live on half of it for half a year, and in that time you can get ahead. Work. He seized his portmanteau and was gone before Ben Howard could gather his scattered senses or make reply. End of chapter 31 Recording by Sandra Estenson